Okay, I think we will begin. And tonight, of course, we have the pleasure and uh, great honor of having Ira Fistel with us. As those of you who have been here in the past know, Ira is a huge fan of Mark Twain and also, as far as I'm concerned, a real scholar of Mark Twain. I don't know that he would call himself that, but I will, since I'm introducing him. He <laughs> does you. a wonderful presentation, and without any further ado, tonight we are here to begin a conversation about his great novel, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And you will find, as you listen to Ira, that he has ways and knowledge uh, and just uh, an ability to describe what an author is doing and will cause you to look and help you to look at an author in a whole new way. I will turn this over to Ira and let him tell us all about a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Well, well thank you very much. Uh, I am going to tell you some things that are not well uh, you know, not widely known about this book or observed about this book. Uh, I think that it is on, almost without, almost without rival, the most misunderstood and most misread great novel ever written in America. Even professors of literature don't seem to understand it half the time. Now, one of the reasons for that is that they have not very well defined certain terms. And we're going to start by defining the terms that we're going to be talking about. Now, I mentioned uh, during the Huckleberry Finn discussion that Mark Twain is America's greatest literary master of the three principal tools that he uses, irony, humor, and satire. Okay, what is irony? Does anybody know what irony is? Irony is the frustration of expectations and you get the reversal of what you expect. You're led to expect something to happen, and then at the end, it doesn't happen. Something completely different happens, frequently the opposite of what you were expecting. That is irony, the sudden twist at the end. Frequently you find this in mystery novels. Uh, I was just reading a new mystery novel, not even yet published, the other day. And all through the book, you think you know who the murderer is. You think you know this bad guy, right? At the end of the book, it turns out it's not him at all. It's somebody completely different. Irony. The twist at the end. Frustration of expectations. The second thing, of course, is humor. And humor is perhaps a little harder to define than irony. But I think it consists largely of two major elements. One, incongruity. Something that doesn't belong in a place where it doesn't belong. Uh, the classic example here is uh, uh, the lonely little petunia in the onion patch. It's funny. It's funny because it doesn't belong. The other thing, even more important, the other element of humor that's even more important is humor deflates pomposity by exploding it, by pointing out how silly it is, the deflation of the pompous is a major element in humor. And the third element in humor is timing. It's all got to come off at the right time and uh, at the right length, you know. So humor then consists of three elements that we can talk about. One is incongruity. Second is the deflation of the pompous. And third is timing. That brings us to the third major Mark Twain tool, the third big element in all of his major novels, all of his works, for that matter. The third element is satire. That's the hardest to define of any of the three, largely because most people don't know that there really is a definition of satire. Now, I went to my dictionary, and I looked it up. I wanted to see what the dictionary gives. And the dictionary says, satire... And let's see, I'll read it to you. The use of irony, sarcasm, ridicule, etc., in exposing, denouncing, or deriding vice or folly. Well, that's not very helpful, is it? The use of irony, sarcasm, ridicule, etc., in exposing, denouncing, or deriding vice or folly. If that's true, then why is satire different from irony? If irony is part of satire, if um, sarcasm is part of satire, if ridicule is part 
satire of satire, then why aren't those things, you know, why are they different from satire? Why is satire different from them? As a matter of fact, that definition is not only insufficient, it's really wrong. There is a correct definition of satire, even if most people don't seem to know it. I was lucky enough to attend the University of Chicago, which is probably the greatest institution of higher learning in the United States of America. Apologies to Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Stanford or any of the other great universities. But I don't know any place that teaches the way the University of Chicago teaches. It has always had an exceptional faculty. Right from the day it was founded back in the 1890s, when the president of the university, William Rady Harper, hired all the best faculty people he could find all over the country, including a number of university presidents, to teach there. It was founded by John D. Rockefeller and William Money Harper with the intention of being a great university, and they sure did it right. Okay, so I had, for in the uh, college English classes, I didn't take, uh, you know, I didn't take basic English. I was... Uh, not an English major, but uh, I wasn't on anything major. But I took uh, very high-level English classes. And my professor in satire was Ned Rosenheim, Edward W. Rosenheim, Jr., who is now dead. But he was a marvelous teacher. And he told us what the real definition of satire is. And once you know it, you know he's right. And there is no other adequate definition. Satire is the tactic of attacking some object, person, idea, institution, but carrying out the attack by use of an indirect object. For example, Jonathan Swift, the famous English satirist, and his most famous satire is the uh, um, one about eating Irish babies. It's called uh, A Modest Proposal. Uh, Swift was not telling people that the solution to the food problem in Ireland was to eat Irish babies. But what he was doing was attacking what he saw was the real problem in the fact that there was no food in Ireland, where he was a minister, by the way. He was an Englishman, but he was an Anglo-Irishman. Uh, he lived in Ireland and was dean of the Catholic cathedral, of, um, in the Protestant cathedral in Ireland. And his point was that the English landlords who owned all the land in Ireland were taking all the food to England and not leaving any for the Irish peasants. Well, that was an easy thing to attack, but the way he went about attacking it, he used a straw man, so to speak, a substitute object, and he claimed uh, that the obvious answer, if there was no food in Ireland was, and too many children, was to eat Irish babies. He didn't mean that. That wasn't the intention. But when you understand what he did mean, and you see that he's attacking the English landlords for taking all the food out of Ireland, you participate in the attack by recognizing that it's a, the object that he's actually attacking is not the real object. That's satire, where you carry out an attack on some person, idea, or institution by attacking a straw man, not the real object, but a substitute object, and then letting the reader, letting the perceptive reader make the connection and see what the real object is. That is why that when satire works, when satire is, uh, works, reaches the reader, it is enormously powerful because it involves the reader himself in the attack. You see it? You don't, uh, you don't get the attack as it uh, appears directly, you have to participate and figure out that the supposed object of attack is not the real object, and you're supposed to re recognize the real object. That's satire, attack by means of indirect object. Mark Twain was the supreme American satirist, and the Connecticut Yankee is his greatest piece of satire. It's not one satire, it's satire on top of satire on top of satires. All right, now, having defined those terms, irony, satire, and humor, if you're recording this, as I hope you are, you can play it back right there and listen to those three definitions again. Get them into your head, because this is the key to understanding this novel, 
is to see what he's doing in this novel, what he's, what he's attacking, and who he's attacking. And it is not the obvious object of attack. The object of attack is a substitute object. So let's start with the, the background of the book. Huckleberry Finn was completed in 1884, but it wasn't published until late in 1884 in England and in, um, I think it was February in 1885 in America. And the sales on Life on the Mississippi, which just had been published, were not going as well as Clemens wanted. And so in the fall of 1884, Sam Clemens found himself in need of some quick cash. He did what he always did when he needed quick cash. He went on a lecture tour. And on this occasion, he teamed up with the American humorist George Washington Cable on a 10,000-mile, 70-city tour that lasted four months. And he did make a lot of money on it. Uh, that's the way he made money whenever he needed it quickly. He went out and lectured. Well, for our point of view, from the point of view of literature, the most important moment of that tour occurred one night in Rochester, New York. Cable and Clemens were in a bookstore. And Cable saw and pointed out to Mark Twain, to Samuel Clemens, the book The Mort d'Arthur, M-O-R-T-E-D-A-R-T-H-U-R, The Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, by Sir Thomas Mallory. And this is the first and most important English language retelling of the legends of King Arthur and the Table Round, you know, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Sir Thomas Mallory, is, uh, we don't really know much about him. Uh, he wrote in the book that he completed it while he was in jail uh, in 1471, I think it was, a uh, 15th century writer. And we're not even sure exactly which Thomas Mallory it is because there were two Sir Thomas Mallory's at that time, one of whom wrote uh, Mort d'Arthur and the other one didn't. Well, he wrote, whoever he was, he told the Arthurian tales in such a charming and wonderful way that they have come down to us today through his book. And Clemens, as many people have, simply fell in love with the stories of King Arthur and the Round Table, as told by Thomas Mallory. Well, being Samuel Clemens, he had some notes that he made about how he read, uh, what he felt about that book. Late in 1884, after that memorable night in Rochester, Clemens wrote these notes. Quote, Dream of being a knight errant in armor in the Middle Ages. Have the notions and habits of thought of the present day mixed with the necessities of that. No pockets in the armor. No, made, no way to manage certain requirements of nature. Can't scratch. Cold in the head, can't blow your nose. Can't get at a handkerchief. Can't use your iron sleeve to roll your nose on. Iron gets red hot in the sun. Leaks in the rain. Gets white from frost and freezes me solid in the winter. Suffer from lice and fleas. Make disagreeable clatter when I enter church. Can't dress or undress myself. Always getting stuck by lightning. Fall down, can't get up. <laughs> All this is from Mark Twain's notebook. So we know that uh, this is what he wrote and when he wrote it. Well, Twain's conception of a knight in metal armor at King Arthur's court, you will be surprised, I think, to hear, is a total anachronism. We all are used to the, the pictures and the stories of the knights in shining armor, uh, Sir Lancelot and uh, Sir Galahad and all the others. Well, actually, if there really was a historical King Arthur, he lived in the 6th century. And iron armor wasn't invented for about another 500 years. So if there actually was a King Arthur, he was probably a good deal more like a primitive tribal chieftain. And his soldiers were not knights in shining armor. They probably wore uh, homespun or something. But Mark Twain never let such historical complications interfere with a good story, and it's unlikely if any of his readers have ever cared. And in fact, uh, same thing applies to Mallory. Talk of Arthur and his knights at the round table, and uh, mention to the man in the street, and he will think of knights in shining armor, 
and he doesn't need any help from Mark Twain either to, to do that. Okay, so the whole idea of the, uh, the Knights of the Table Round as we know it is an, uh, a uh, historical anachronism. Not that the original armored jokes that we were just been talking about play more than a very minor part of the novel as it actually developed. This was very common with Mark Twain. He'd start with an original idea, often a comic idea, and as he wrote, what he wrote was transformed into something much deeper, much darker, darker rather, and far more complicated than the original idea. According to Mark Twain's biographer, Justin Kaplan, these grimmer dimensions of this story were present as early as January 1886, when the first three chapters of the Connecticut Yankee were written. And for that reference, see Justin Kaplan's book, Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain. Well, at about the same time Twain was beginning to set the story of uh, the Mark of the uh, Connecticut Yankee, Hank Morgan, in, Hank, in uh, King Arthur's court, Samuel Clemens was involving himself in a disastrous business venture, which was eventually to bankrupt him and to just make misery out of his life. At the beginning of February 1886, almost at the same time he started the book, Clemens assumed half ownership of the James Page typesetting machine in return for a commitment to finance construction of a prototype machine and to pay for manufacture and promotion of the invention. The Page machine was something Clemens was fascinated by because if you remember the story of his life, his first job was as a printer's apprentice when he was 11 or 12 years old. And what the apprentice printer did was to pick out the movable type and put it in a rack upside down and backwards and create words. And then that would be printed by hand on a, on a press. And then they take the type apart again and go on to the next page. That was the idea of movable type. And it's what made modern uh, literature possible. And it was uh, turned out by uh, Johannes Guttenberg in, I think, 1491, something like that. But at any rate, movable type was the, the um, way all books were, were printed for several hundred years, from 1500 to at least the late 1880s, 1990s. Mark Twain saw this machine that James Page was working on, and it was what we would today call an analog of the human typesetter, because it tried to do by mechanical means what a typesetter, a, a printer's double, would have done by hand. Well, it was an enormously complicated machine. It had to be enormously complicated, and it was always breaking down. And while it appeared a couple of times that it was actually finished, it never really was because uh, the inventor was always tinkering with it and, and putting more into it, trying to make it work better. And by the time it even got near finished, Otto Mergenthaler in Germany had invented an alternative way of printing, not by removing pieces of type, but by setting the type and then melting it down and casting new type. And that was the linotype machine. And it was already in existence while uh, Page was still working on his complicated machine that Twain was paying for. Ultimately, the page machine, the page machine rather, never was completed, and never sold a single one. Meanwhile, for several years, beginning in 1886, Clemens had put more and more and more money into it. And by the time the invitation, the invention rather, had to finally be written off as impractical and a failure, it had consumed, and get this figure, three hundred thousand dollars of Sam Clemens and his wife's money. And this was 1890. $300,000 in 1890, you know what the equivalent of that would be today? Way up in the millions. Way up yeah. in the millions. Well, this was Twain's effort to get rich quick. He was fascinated by the machine. He thought it was going to make him so much money he'd never have to write anymore. He'd never have to work anymore. And he kept putting more and more money into it and the whole thing finally collapsed on him. Well, Mark Twain in Huckleberry Finn wrote a chapter called Overreaching Don't Pay. 
and it talks about the cost of thoughtlessness and self-deception. Well, Mark Twain wrote about self-deception, while Samuel Clemens was deceiving himself exactly what his alter ego, Mark Twain, was warning against. Clemens couldn't get over the, the typesetting machine. All right, he began the Connecticut Yankee in 1886, and it was finished, well, maybe, in May 1889, and went to the publisher in December of that year. Well, during that period, Clemens' financial position was growing progressively more precarious because he was continuing to pour so much money into the page machine in search of quick riches. He always wanted to get rich quick. He wanted to get rich quick as a miner in Nevada and California, he wanted to get rich quick as a publisher, as a promoter, as a playwright, as an inventor, and he never got rich quick with any of those things. His deteriorating money position is reflected in Mark Twain's increasingly bitter diatribes in the Connecticut Yankee, and it's full of them. Unfortunately, Samuel Clemens simply couldn't live by Mark Twain's words. Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens began to diverge as personalities, I think. It's almost like, at the end, they became two people in the same body. Clemens was a money grubber. He was a guy who couldn't keep friends, turned on almost everybody. Uh, he, was, he had a terrible temper. His children were afraid of him. Mark Twain, on the other hand, is the greatest writer America has produced, and his devotion to the poor, the... the slave, uh, the oppressed, the colonial victim was unstinting. Uh, he was years ahead of his time. Too bad that Samuel Clemens couldn't live the way Mark Twain wrote. It's now been over a century since the Connecticut Yankee first appeared in print in 1889, and yet contemporary critics seem to be as bewildered by the book as people were at the time it was written. Most people see this as an attack on ignorance and superstition in old England, on monarchy, an attack on the established Catholic Church, and even on the institution of uh, chivalry itself. Now, I contend, on the contrary, that if you read the Connecticut Yankee carefully, read it structurally, and read it with an open mind, it can be revealed to be simply one step further along the path of Huckleberry Finn. It's another ironic, comic, and satiric novel in which the ultimate object of the author's attack is not the straw man, but Mark Twain's own time, late Victorian America. In other words, The Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court is about the Connecticut Yankee and America much more than it's about Old England. That The Yankee may have been a less successful book than Huckleberry Finn as a work of art, it's certainly not quite as good doesn't take away from its merits anyway as the outstanding example of satire in American literature. And by studying all the elements of the book and by creative interpretation, I'm going to try to demonstrate that the Connecticut Yankee has been too often misread and more often just ignored, and that it deserves recognition instead as the most biting, most damning, and most imaginative attack ever leveled at the unchecked abuses of capitalism and the mindless avarice of late Victorian America. All of that is by way of preparation for getting to the book. We now get to the book. And if you open the, the Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, as I'm about to do right now, you find the first thing in the book is, the, after the table of contents, a preface. All right, what does the preface say? It was written in Hartford, July 21st, 1889, according to the date. And it says, quote, the ungentle laws and customs touched upon in this tale are historical, and the episodes used to illustrate them are also historical. It is not pretended that these laws and customs existed in England in the 6th century. No. It is only pretended that inasmuch as they existed in England and in other civilizations of far later times, it's safe to consider that there is no libel on the 6th century to suppose them to have been in practice then also. One is quite justified in inferring that wherever one of these laws or customs was lacking in that remote time, well, it was place was probably filled with something worse. That's the first paragraph of the preface. Why did he write this and what is it saying? He's saying, well, 
you know, the, these things, these laws and customs may not have existed in old England, but they certainly exist today, and there's no reason to suppose that they didn't exist in old England, and if they didn't, something worse was probably there instead. Why is this here? There can only be one reason, and this is equivalent to the notice in Huckleberry Finn. He's putting you on notice that there is more to this book than appears on the surface. What does he say? It is not pretended that these laws and customs existed in England in the 6th century. No, it is only pretended that inasmuch as they existed in the English and other civilizations of far later times, i.e. Victorian America, it is safe to consider that it's no libel in the 6th century to suppose them to have been in practice in that day also. So, he's telling you, he's giving you a broad hint that this novel is a satire and that Old England in the 6th century is the straw man but not the real object of attack. Now at this point I have to get into another uh, definition of terms. Novel. Today we think of a novel as any long piece of prose fiction. But that is not the original meaning of novel and it's not the kind of novel that this is. The original meaning of a novel was a piece of prose fiction of uh, length, uh, ordinary length that explores the manners and mores of a society or segment of society frequently by injecting into it somebody from outside that society and using him as an observer and critic. A novel, in other words, was a piece of fiction which dealt with social mores and manners, social customs, um, the way societies worked. An ordinary entertainment with no such sociological purpose was called a romance. Not because it had love or romance in it, but uh, from the French word roman, meaning a tale, uh, a story. Okay, The Connecticut Yankee is a classic novel, a novel of manners and morals. And, of course, the first question is, manners and morals of what society? And that's where what I just talked about, the, the preface, comes in. It appears on the surface to be an explosion of an attack on the manners and morals of England in the 6th century. But we have to look deeper, and that's what the preface is telling us to do. Okay, structure of the novel. We'll find that the Connecticut Yankee is very similar in structure to Huckleberry Finn, the book that immediately preceded it. Like Huckleberry Finn, it may conveniently be divided into three large parts, defined partly by geography and corresponding to the traditional three acts of a stage drama. The first section describes the Yankee's arrival in and conquest of Camelot. It comprises chapters 1 and 10 and ends with the Yankees implanting the beginnings of 19th century American commercial civilization in Old England with the aid of his absolute, nearly unlimited power. And this section could be compared with the first 11 chapters of Huckleberry Finn, which form its opening act. However, where in Huckleberry Finn, the story involved the disengaging of Huck from the society that was around him to free him as a social critic, in this book, it involves the integration of the character from outside into the society so that he becomes a social critic from the inside out. So, as in many other ways, the two books are almost mirror images of each other. Uh, they are almost like two twins uh, facing each other, one being right-handed and the other left-handed. And so uh, they're closely related and they're similar, but they're opposites at the same time. In the, in the conception. The center of Huckleberry Finn, chapters 12 to 31, is very long, 20 chapters, and made up of two separate series of adventures. The exactly same thing is true of the middle section of this book, Connecticut Yankee. In Huck Finn, the central section can be divided into first the adventures of the Walter Scott and the Feud episodes, which involve only Huck and Jim, and the second series 
including the rape of Parkville, the Bricksville scenes, and the Wilkes family saga, which also involved the king and the duke. In the Connecticut Yankee, the second section is also long, in this case 28 chapters compared to 20 in Huckleberry Finn, and the second section is divided into two sections. First, the boss's adventures with Sandy and roaming the countryside, and then his incognito ramble in company with the king, also in disguise. The second section concludes with a dramatic rescue of the king and the boss who are just about to be hanged when Sir Lancelot and 500 knights in armor mounted on bicycles come arriving uh, just in time to save them. What did I say about humor? Incongruity? Well, that's incongruous, all right. 500 knights in armor on bicycles? <laughs> this is certainly one of Mark Twain's most memorable comic visions. Right? Both books are resolved in the third sections, once again, geographically defined. The last part of Huck is set on the Phelps Plantation in or Louisiana, I guess it's Louisiana, and the last section of The Yankee takes place back at Camelot. But in the later novel, this act, describing the apparent triumph and ultimate defeat of the Yankee and his civilization, is only six chapters long. In Huckleberry Finn, it's 11 to 12 chapters. The last part of this book seems curiously rushed and foreshortened, out of sync with the pace and length of the rest of the book. And so, in fact, while the Yankee structure is parallel to that of Huckleberry Finn, the Arthurian novel, Connecticut Yankee, is lopsided. The first section is 10 chapters. The second is 28 and tends to drag. And the resolution is only six, way too short, leading the reader to feel that as if he's been mugged by too many events following one another too closely. And this lack of balance between the sections is one of the most obvious flaws in the book. And one senses, and I think it's almost certainly true, that Twain ran out of patience with the book at the end. He rushed the ending just to get the thing over with, and he was obsessed with completing the book at the same time Page was finishing the typesetting machine. And Page appeared to be finishing the typesetting machine in the spring of 1889. Actually, it never really was finished, but Twain thought it was about to be finished. He was fully aware that the Kinetic Yankee was something less than perfect. And one reason it was less than perfect is he didn't take the year that he took with Huckleberry Finn to rewrite, to shorten, to tighten, and to improve the book. He wrote it and sent it away, just as it was. And he was fully aware that uh, he hadn't done a perfect job. In a famous letter to William Dean Howells, who was his best friend in literary conscience, Dated September 22nd, 1889, he wrote, quote, Well, my book's written. Let it go. But if it were to be written over again, there wouldn't be so many things left out. Things burn in me, and they keep multiplying. But now they can't ever be said. And besides, it would require a library and a pen warmed up in hell to write them. End quote. So Mark Twain knew that the Connecticut Yankee was not as good a book as Huckleberry Finn. As a work of art, it's obviously inferior. There is yet another structural similarity between the Yankee and Huckleberry Finn. I refer to the preface, which compare comparable to the notice at the beginning of Huckleberry Finn, and has the same purpose, to put the reader on notice that this book has got some deeper purpose than what uh, appears on the surface. Now, what about this, the origin of the Connecticut Yankee? I mentioned it was November, December rather, of 1884 when Twain first encountered Mallory in the stories. It may have been that early that he recognized something. In the Arthurian stories, Arthur himself is not a particularly perceptive or bright character. And in fact, the whole destruction of Arthur as king and of his world turns on the fact that Arthur's wife, Queen Guinevere, was having a not very well-hidden affair with Sir Launcelot. And at the end of the book, uh, treacherous Mordred informs Arthur that Launcelot is having an affair with his wife, and it uh, leads to the end of the book and the destruction of everybody. Arthur the king was not a particularly bright guy. Everybody in England knew that the uh, Queen was having an affair with Lancelot, except Arthur. 
Well, who was president of the United States in uh, 1884? I'll bet not one person in a hundred can tell me immediately off the top who the president of the United States was in 1884 without looking it up. Well, of course, if you were in the United States in 1884, you wouldn't have that problem. You'd know who the president was, probably. Coincidence of names. It was Chester Allen Arthur who was president of the United States. Moreover, Arthur had been the head of the New York Customs House at a time when bribery and corruption were absolutely rife in, uh, in government especially in the New York Customs House. And Arthur, while he was personally honest, was called the king of the spoilsmen. Anybody see the parallel between King Arthur and King Arthur? And what's more, Chester Arthur was not known as a man of particular uh, sophistication, brilliance, or penetration. In other words, he was sort of a dum-dum, party warhorse. Uh, it may have been that Twain got the idea of using the Mallory characters and the story of England in the 6th century as a satiric vehicle to attack American uh, Victorian vice from the beginning with the uh, coincidence of the name of King Arthur of England being uh, associated with King Arthur, King Chester Arthur, President of the United States, King of the Spoilsmen, Chester Arthur. Well, if it didn't start with that, it soon came to that. And Arthur in the book is depicted as a great person, wonderful, wonderful man, uh, caring, truly, truly uh, heedless of his own welfare when it came to taking care of others, and yet he's not very smart. And the Yankees always trying to drill him and keep him on from blowing the uh, the story of their incognito from blowing it uh, by acting too knightly and too too royal. So you have Chester Arthur, not very bright, and Arthur the King, not very bright, and you have Chester King Arthur as King of the Spoilsmen. A deadly parallel, and perhaps the beginning of the idea of using Arthurian England as the straw man in the uh, attack on Victorian America. So, the entire novel is the beginning, from beginning to end, one great satire. It is not a simple-minded comparison between bad 6th century England and good Victorian America, as most people seem to think. What it really is is a devastating attack on avarice, boorishness, and self-deception, as found not only in Arthur's time, but in America, in the Victorian periods, and in the boss himself, the central character. Let me read to you what Clemens, or Twain, I should say, writes in describing the Yankee, how the Yankee describes himself. And this is in the cha first chapter. I am an American. I was born and reared in Hartford, in the state of Connecticut. Well, anyway, just across the river in the country. So I am a Yankee of the Yankees. Practical, yes, and nearly barren of sentiment, I suppose, or poetry, in other words. My father was a blacksmith, my uncle was a horse doctor, and I was both at first. And then I went over to the great arms factory, the Remington Arms Factory in Connecticut, and I learned my real trade, learned all there was to it. I learned to make everything. Guns, revolvers, cannon, boilers, engines, all sorts of labor-saving machinery. Why, well, I could make anything a body wanted, anything in the world. Didn't make any difference what. And if there wasn't any quick, newfangled way to make a thing, I'd invent one and do it as easy as rolling off a log. I became head superintendent and had a couple thousand men under me. Okay. The Yankee has no sentiment in his makeup, no poetry in his makeup, and like America itself, his talent is for making things, making anything, making it faster and better, and if he couldn't find a way to make it uh, existing, he'd invent a new way. The Yankee is American. He is America in that sense also. He certainly stands for the society of which he's a part, 
Victorian America had all the evils Hank Morgan attacks in Arthurian England, though sometimes in different forms. There's no monarchy, but its place is taken by the American plutocracy. This was the period of the Gilded Age, the robber barons, the period of the uh, untrammeled capitalists who were just didn't care about anything except making money, and not necessarily honestly. For civility to the established church, America at Plains time substituted worship of money. Tally the evils of Arthur's range, Arthur's realm rather, as Hank Morgan sees them and reports them in the book, and they include ignorance, cruelty, slavery, avarice, and superstition. And you immediately realize that all of them have counterparts in not only Hank Morgan's America, the 1890s, but our own. I already talked about the significance of the title, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Well, America was, in fact, King Arthur's Court, Chester Arthur. Then there are subtle indications of the novel's satiric intent right from the beginning in the word of explanation, which precedes the first chapter and comes after the preface. Consider this. Hank Morgan, the boss, to be called, says, A man like me is a man full of fight. Goes without saying. Well, a couple of thousand rough men under one, he, one has that, plenty sort of, that sort of amusement. I had, anyway. But at last I met my match and I got a dose. It was during a misunderstanding conducted with crowbars. Not swords, but crowbars. With a fellow we used to call Hercules. Well, he laid me out with a crusher alongside the head that made everything crack. Seemed to spring every joint in my skull and make it overlap its neighbor. And then the world went out in darkness and I didn't feel anything more and didn't know anything at all. At least for a while. In other words, the Connecticut Yankee gets hit over the head, side of the head, with a crowbar. Then he writes, When I came to again, I was sitting under an oak tree on the grass with a whole beautiful, broad country landscape all to myself, nearly. Not entirely, for there was a fellow on a horse looking down at me, a fellow fresh out of a picture book. He was an old-time iron armor from head to heel with a helmet on his head, shape of a nail keg with slits in it, and he had a shield and a sword and a prodigious spear, and his horse had armor on, too, and a steel horn projecting from his forehead, and gorgeous red and green silk trappings that hung down all around him like a bed quilt, nearly to the ground. Wakes up in the 6th century. Well, now, this uh, takes some thinking about. I don't know how many of you realize it, but what happens to King Arthur at the end of the book, if you read it carefully, Arthur gets hit on the side of the head by Mordred, his nephew, who is, he's in the process of killing. And the last thing Mordred does is to kill his uncle, King Arthur, by hitting him on the side of the head with a, uh, something like a crowbar. What happens to the Yankee in his tale, recollection of the tale, is very similar to what happens to the king at the end. Okay. Let's take another step. Why is he named Hank Morgan? Anybody uh, have any uh, inkling of an idea of why Mark Twain called his uh, hero Hank Morgan? Perfectly ordinary American name, isn't it? Or is it? In 1889 or 1890, the name Morgan meant J.P. Morgan and J.P. Morgan's family. And they were the financiers. Um, J.P. Morgan, the elder, started out during the Civil War financing the Union War effort. His son, Junius P. Morgan, uh, became the biggest industrialist in America, sat on the boards of something like 100 different companies, um, put together U.S. Steel, and financed many of the American railroads, uh, the leading banker and financier of his time. Anybody got any idea where J.P. Morgan was born? You ought to guess. In Connecticut. He was a Connecticut Yankee. And Hank Morgan, immediately to anybody reading this at that time, the name Morgan had to suggest itself. Uh, even if you didn't know that uh, J.P. Morgan was a Connecticut Yankee, uh, just the name Morgan makes the connection. There's also another connection with the name Morgan. In the story of King Arthur, King Arthur has a sister whose name is Morgan Le Fay, 
an absolutely horrible woman who enjoys causing pain and suffering among her people she doesn't like. And the Connecticut Yankee does exactly the same thing she does, except uh, he wouldn't recognize it that way, and the perceptive reader has to, has to realize it. You have to think about it before you see it. She has a, what is it, a composer hanged for writing bad music, and later in the book, Morgan, the boss, has a poet put to death for telling bad jokes. Same thing. He's very much like Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay claims to be a great sorceress. Actually, she isn't. Hank Morgan, with all the knowledge of 19th century technology, claims to be a great wizard, and he isn't. There are deadly similarities between Morgan and Morgan, Hank Morgan and Morgan Le Fay. So the name Morgan isn't quite so innocent after all. There are some other indications as to what Twain was up to. Uh, the illustrations of the original edition of the book. I happen to have a copy of the book that has some of the original illustrations in it. My paperback copy that I teach from doesn't have them, but my own copy does. The illustrations were done by an artist named Dan Beard. Dan Beard uh, met Clemens, and Clemens himself selected Beard to be the illustrator of the book. Now, Dan Beard was, among other things, a leader in the Boy Scout movement in America. In fact, I think he may have been the founder of the American Boy Scouts. Uh, and secondly, he was a socialist, and he was rabidly uh, opposed to the excesses of capitalism in the Gilded Age. And Jay Gould was the robbingest of all the robber barons, he carried it to an art. He robbed his own partners as well as everybody else. Well, when Dan Beard was asked to write to, to the illustrations, he illustrated some of the characters with recognizable faces of people from the 19th century. And when it came to the slave driver, guess whose face he used for the slave driver? You got it. Dan Gould. American wage slavery is not so much different than, than slavery. Not that much different. Uh, and the slave driver, Jay Gould, was certainly no more evil than Simon Legree, uh, no more evil than the, uh, the uh, slaves at the court at uh, the time of the table round. Dan Beard used many people. He used the Kaiser of Germany, Queen Victoria. He used a lot of different faces. Well, you can't say that Twain didn't realize what Beard was doing. Obvious in the first place. And secondly, Twain himself chose Beard to do the drawings. And he said to Beard, and this has been recorded, I'm not going to tell you what to draw. I'll leave it to you, but I think you get the point. <laughs> if you look at the illustrations, obviously, uh, Beard is giving away in the satire. He's telling you, he's showing you what Twain was writing. Unfortunately, they don't publish those illustrations in the paperbacks these days. That's another way of knowing that uh, this book is a satire. At the beginning of the Yankees manuscript, in my edition with the Dan Beard drawings, there is a drawing of Morgan tweaking the nose of the British lion. And uh, the British lion is a statue. Under the statue is written the words, The Tale of the Lost Land. Now that's a peculiar way to describe Arthur's England. It may never have existed, but it certainly hasn't been lost, thanks to Thomas Mallory. In no sense can you reasonably describe Victorian England as a lost land. But if we think of the Yankees' version of Victorian England, with all the uh, 19th century technology that he built there, and then it was all blown up and disappeared, ah, in that sense, it's a lost land. Then consider what the word lost means. It has several different meanings. Lost could mean forgotten, lost in the sense of defeated, lost in the sense of without direction, without knowledge of one's true position. And all three of those meanings apply to the Yankees' attempt to build a society of the 19th century in America and England in the 6th. What's more, the lost land appellation in the third meaning, lost without direction, without knowledge of one's true position, applies not only to the Yankees' reproduction of Victorian America, but to the real thing, the society existing as Mark Twain was writing the book. 
That's a lost land, all right. Lost without direction. Another double entendre, another indication, another warning that we're dealing with the master satirist disguising his violent criticism of the Yankee and all that he stands for and is associated with behind the cloaks of attacks on a world which never existed. The America of the uh, Robert Barron period was a lost land. It didn't know where it was going. It had no sense of direction. And after all, there's another point here. What would have been the sense of attacking the institutions of Arthurian England unless you were using them to highlight how superior they are to those of Victorian America or how inferior? But if that was the intended meaning of the book, it couldn't end as it does or be written as it is. Uh, on the contrary, any reasonably perceptive reading of the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court cannot leave the slightest doubt that this is the extreme example, the supreme example, of satiric attack canon of American literature. I don't know how difficult this is to point out. I've spent a whole hour doing this, but it's the key to understanding the book. Um, I have a note here about uh, William Dean Howells, Twain's friend and, and uh, literary conscience, and the editor of Harper's Magazine. Howells wrote in a review in 1890, while not perhaps comprehending all of the satire, he was perceptive enough to remark in his article that, quote, the nobleman of Arthur's time who fattened on the blood and sweat of his bondman is one in essence with the capitalist of 1889 who grows rich on the labor of his underpaid wage men. And that's quoted in Howell's book, My Mark Twain, Reminiscences and Criticisms. So Howell's, Howell's at least sort of got it. Unfortunately, many people, most people, don't seem to. So here we have reason after reason after reason for interpreting the Connecticut Yankee as, I'm sure Mark Twain intended, as a satire on America in his own time and its foibles and its money-grubbing failures. Yet he himself was part of that society. Clemens himself, trying to get rich on the page machine. He was writing about himself. He was satirizing himself. And obviously he must have known it. He must have. He couldn't possibly have written it without knowing that he was writing about himself. But I do think that uh, the distinguishing of the Mark Twain persona from the Samuel Clemens personality is more advanced in this book than ever before, and by the end of his life becomes almost uh, the two personalities in the same book, the same body, rather, as I said before. What about the beginning of the book? Well, I don't know how much time we have. Bonnie, are you there? We would only have, I think, about five minutes left. Let's stop right I... here, then, and we'll pick this up the next time we do this uh, with the beginning of the book and how uh, it relates to um, the, the very important aspect of the book, which I haven't talked about yet, which is the frame around the story. In this book, uniquely in all of Mark Twain's books, the story is framed within another story, which is framed within a third story. That would be good, Ira. Uh, one thing I guess I wonder about Mark Twain, and, and I would like to take a couple minutes for any comments or questions anyone has. Oh, I'd love is, to. Um, since he had such a view of seeing people so clearly and so deeply, how do you think he really looked at himself? I, I'm sure that there were times when he was really, as you say, poking fun at himself, and he certainly did get the fact that he was trying to make money. But would you describe him as a happy person? No. Uh, not in Mark Twain. Here we're talking about Samuel Clemens. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. You have to distinguish about. Samuel Clemens from Mark Twain because they're almost yes. like two different people. That's Samuel right. Clemens was not a happy person. And the older he got, the more, what would you say, angry, the more furious he got, uh, the less pleasant he got. I mentioned to earlier that his children were afraid of him. He, was, he had such a terrible temper. He once blew up at his daughter Clara for daring to be in a room with 20 or some odd German officers. Uh, he ripped the hat off of her head because he thought it was a... Uh, you know, provocative. Oh. Um, he was a terrible, terrible, uh, angry, terribly angry man. And he was angry because he had an 
awesome burden of guilt that he carried around. Yeah. Now, the guilt starts when he's a kid. Uh, he mentions going to the uh, Presbyterian Sunday School and having that awful Presbyterian conscience that everything, uh, uh, everything goes wrong is his fault. Mm-hmm. As a young man, that seemed to recede somewhat, uh, and it wasn't interfering with his life. But after he got married and after he had the kids, he became more and more uh, guilty as time went by, to the point where in his autobiography, which, you know, has just been, parts of it just been published, the rest of it's coming later this year, uh, he, takes, he takes the blame in the, auto, in the autobiography for the death of his son Langdon at 19 months. Uh, he claims he took Langdon out on a carriage ride and didn't cover him up, and the boy got sick and died. Unfortunately, it's not true. Uh, Langdon died of diphtheria. It had nothing to do with being outside on a cold day. And Twain was not in any way guilty of the death of his son, and yet he assumed that guilt. Why? He had to feel something. There had to be something that would explain that terrible guilt. And the worse it got as he got older, it got worse and worse. What he never recovered from, he never, ever got over the death of his daughter, Susie. Uh, Susie was the favorite child in the family. She was born in 1872 and died of spinal meningitis in 1896 at the age of 24. If you look closely at his writing, nearly all of his books, in fact, virtually all the good stuff, all the things he completed, were written during her lifetime. And after she died, he couldn't finish a book. Uh, he'd started writing, he'd write, and he'd write, and he'd write, and he'd abandon it. Uh, he couldn't, couldn't stay on a topic. Uh, he was just frantic. Couldn't get over her death. Now, I'll go into some of these things at another time. Um, I'm going to publish my book on Mark Twain, I think, later this summer. Uh, and when it comes out, I'll let you know. Everybody Fantastic. can buy it. <laughs> now, well, all the stuff I'm doing, of course, is, is in the book. It's part of my book. Well, he was a man who dealt in reason, and so his, um, in a way, his life, his life, and his writing was, was in many ways always an explanation of people and why they do what they do, and society and why it does what it does. He never got over the fact that as a young man growing up in Hannibal, he never saw anything wrong with slavery. Mm. Uh, Hannibal was a slave town. His father mm. owned a slave, and he actually saw his father beat a slave. And didn't see anything wrong with it, because there was nobody in town to tell him there was anything wrong with slavery. Yeah. And he never got over that, either. Uh, as an older man, he provided money to send a black student through Yale University as his personal penance for not seeing slavery as, as it was. Ira, let's uh, take a moment to uh, go to the computer room here and see whether anyone has any questions. Here on the phone. Oh, go ahead, um, I was wondering if... And I don't. Maybe you would prefer to get into this next week. But I was wondering if you could talk about Merlin. We have to talk about Merlin, but Merlin comes later in the book. Okay. Uh, there's one thing that I will say about Merlin, though. What power does he have? Have you read the book? Yes. Uh, he doesn't okay. really have any power. Well, he has one power. He can do one thing. He does it uh, the first time we're introduced to him, when Clarence talks about him. And we'll also see him actually doing it at the end of the book. Merlin's only power is to put people to sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that's the extent of his powers as a wizard. <laughs> and, of course, he can put people to sleep by boring them to sleep. <laughs> and you could do a but, lot while somebody else is asleep. But uh, Merlin also uh, is very comparable to the Yankee. Uh, the Yankee, the boss says at some point, anybody, any wizard who believes in his own magic is a, is a hopeless chump. And, of course, he's talking about Merlin. But he's the same way. He's absolutely the same. He believes in his own magic, the technology of the 19th century, to the point where he becomes a chump. Mm-hmm. This book is full of ironies and uh, satiric things. It's, it's a, this is a marvelous book for that. Uh, we will come to Merlin and, as we go on with the book. Well, I think uh, it will it will pay you to work your way through the book. It's not easy. It is not easy to read, especially in the second part where it really kind of bogs down. Uh, but 
it's worth reading it for the experience of being disappointed. <laughs> it's worth reading it for the experience of not saying, hey, what's going on here? I don't understand this. Because it does that to people. And yet, when you uh, then reread it, knowing all the things that we're, we're talking about, then it begins to make sense. It really does make sense. Uh, it is a great novel, but it's a great flawed novel, very much flawed, and still great. Well, when you can look at it that way, that's a great thing, when you can see the reality of what it is and what it isn't. Yeah. That's as fair as you could ever be. Most people who read this book or, or start reading it give up. They don't, uh, they don't either get through it at all, they just put it down, or else if they do get through it, they don't understand it and feel that they don't understand it. And they, when they leave the book, they're left feeling disquieted and uncomfortable. I don't think there's any question that, that the book does that to many, many readers. Did it to me when I first read it. Did it to me many times after I first read it until I, uh, you know, evolved to see what what it was really all about, why it was doing that, doing that to me. I'm sorry, did you did you want to say something, Sherry? I was just going to say I can attest to the same thing. I felt bored in the middle of the book and a little bit disappointed, but then I thought it picked up at the end. Well, yeah, except the end is not so easy to get around either. <laughs> uh, the, the end is difficult to understand for a reason which I will tell you about when we get to it. There is a terrible horrible flaw in the plot toward the end of the book. It makes it much more difficult to understand. And that's mm. the result of his throwing it to, you know, just throwing it to the publisher and not trying to rewrite anything. Hey, Ira, when, when you look at it that way, though, here's a person who, okay, the greatest American writer, excuse me, and yet he's willing to send a book to a publisher knowing full well that, that there is this great flaw that yeah, you're going to point out to Yeah, because he thought the page was going to make him so rich he'd never have to write again. Well, that's a little, that's a bit diluted, I think. Well, that's Samuel Clemens, you see. That's not Mark Twain. <laughs> Samuel Clemens was only writing to make money. His uh, biographer, Justin Kaplan, recognized that when he titled the book Mr. Clemens and Mark Twain. Yeah. As if they were I two different it. people. Ron, are there any other last questions before we go? Uh, let's see. Uh, Carla Hayes has her hand up. Let's see what she has. All right. I sort of shared your feelings about sort of getting bored and bogged down in the middle, but then when I started paying attention to some things, I picked up on some little subtleties. Um, when you were talking about the satire and the humor, when um, when when uh, Morgan was doing those incantations and he was um, throwing in um, some German. Now, those of you that know me know that I'm a linguist um, and. You know, I, uh, I speak and have um, and teach Spanish, French, and German. And it was sort of funny how he was using the German in some places to sort of make fun of things. There was a lot of nonsense, and every once in a while there would be a real bona fide word in there. And <laughs> that was one of my favorite scenes in the book. Um, but I was wondering if at the end, and maybe I'm a little premature about getting to this, that there wasn't some sort of a, a parallel going on because some sort of a, uh, a parallel universe or something because we come back to the first scene again with the stranger and the manuscript and then you hear him babbling about um, Sandy and things like that so I'm wondering if if he got um, sent back to the 20th century somehow or the 19th century somehow and um, I would like to hear your comments on that. And before I, I let go, I just want to say um, you did an excellent job of explicating this text. Um, I only regret that the computer hookup wasn't as good tonight because there was a lot of cutting out, and I'm sure there's a lot that I missed. You mentioned the point about the German words. Yeah, uh, Mark Twain studied German and lived in Austria for a while and in Germany. Um, so that he actually did speak German. And he had a great deal of fun with German. He wrote a piece called The Awful German Language, which, if you ever read it, is one of his funny pieces. Uh, and he came up with one of the great lines I know of all time. Uh, <laughs> you can tell a German because he jumps into the ocean, swims across, and comes up with a verb in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know anything about German, with the long sentences with the verb is at the end. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the, the humor in that. I mean, there is an enormous amount in this book. 
uh, I'll just make one point that, that you may recognize that uh, as you, you can pass right over it, but it's absolutely the, probably the best pun in American literature that I know of. He's talking about Lancelot and Guinevere, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Lancelot is having an affair with Guinevere. Right. I mentioned that earlier. Well, he sa- the Yankee says, uh, let's see if I can find it in the book. Um, I don't take much stock in that sort of thing. Uh, that wasn't my affair. Get it? Mm-hmm. That's funny. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, because he just is. he just drops it on you, and you yeah. don't you know you don't You'd think, think about it. Yeah, and when you realize it's a tremendous pun, it wasn't my it affair. Is. It was lots and lots of whatever's <laughs> affair. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he's not below, not beneath doing something like that, throwing in a, an off balance line just to you know, to throw you, and then then to laugh himself when you don't get it. You know that's one of the problems with satire. Uh, if the audience doesn't get it, yeah. the whole thing falls flat. Oh, yeah. If the audience understands that it's satire and participates in the satiric attack, it's devastating. If the audience doesn't get it, they walk away wondering what's going on here. And that's one of the things that's happened in this book, because so few people seem to realize what a satire is and that this is the great American satire. I've given you a lot of the background and the uh, perspective, what to look for anyway in the course of the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, it would then, you know, you might enjoy starting to reread the first part of the book, uh, say the first section, the first ten chapters, before we do this again. Now, we're not going to do it in April because I'm going to be away. So uh, it'll have to be May. That's fine. I'll set it up with Robert. Okay, that's fine. Ron, any, any last comments from anyone in the computer room? Uh, I don't see any comments from the computer room. Okay. I would like to thank all of you for coming tonight and uh, come back in May when we have Ira Fastell back to get into the real meat of Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's court. And uh, thank you for coming tonight. Um, we appreciate it very much. And, uh, of course, we'll be having uh, Rob, Bob, Bob Acosta and Ruthann will be having, and everyone else associated with Accessible World will be having other many other events for you to attend between now and when Ira comes again to discuss this book further. Thank you very much. Thank you.